Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and today we're at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation, where I'm slightly biased because I work here, and as you all know, I really like my job. And I'm interviewing one of the uh, directors of the Institute, uh, Professor Enrico Coyera. He's a medical doctor who then did a PhD in artificial intelligence, and that's one of the things I really want to talk to him today about, is artificial intelligence in health and public health, because I think it's a bit scary for a lot of us. Um, and also some more general questions. Thank you for joining us, Enrico. It's a pleasure to be here. And I do just want to start with a little story that might inspire some people to be brave. I've wanted to ask Enrico to be on the show for quite a while. He doesn't know this yet. <laughs> and I went up to his door about three times to ask him, and then I kept turning around and walking away. And then I eventually asked, and he said yes. So if you want to do something, you should be brave and just ask. Yeah, and people aren't really scary. <laughs> Uh, So I thought maybe we could start with you maybe giving us a bit of a description of what your role here as the director, um, as one of the directors of the Australian Institute of Health Innovation is. Thank you. It's a very interesting question. What does it mean to direct a research centre? I'm not sure there's a job description. You have to be a scientist, have ideas, you have to teach people how to do the same thing, you have to go and seek funding to support the research, you have to communicate the research to the world. You have to be involved in mentoring. It's it's such a strange job that we do that I don't really know day to day what I do. All I know is that it's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to ask you for tips on grant writing, um, but first maybe you could talk about uh, maybe the research areas of focus in the Centre for Health Informatics, which is the team you lead. Sure. So, so uh, as the name suggests, uh, informatics is about um, the use of information technology in healthcare. Um, it's, it's really a, a dreadful word, um, informatics. I still don't know what it really means, but a lot of people talk about digital health. And what we try to do is to be at the very cutting edge in our group of, of global thinking in the area. And we like to pick areas where we think we can shape uh, the international research agenda. So um, we tend not to do things that are happening elsewhere. We try to do things that you'll be surprised to see we're doing. So some of our teams are doing work, for example, in uh, network science, understanding how misinformation spreads, how you can use tools to detect biases, and you know all about this uh, around vaccines. Yeah, We have another project which I've started about six months ago called Digital Scribe, and the premise there is that everybody's talking about AI as a way of you know, treating people and finding new diagnoses. And we said, well, you know, what, what does that mean for the practice of medicine? What would it mean if you were to stick Alexa or Siri in the middle of the consultation and made the electronic record disappear? You know, could you change the entire nature of interaction between clinician and patient by getting rid of this horrible OMA, it's called the, called the electronic record, which dominates the whole interaction and make it something where it's just a conversation between patient and doctor and the record is created automatically as a side effect of their conversation because there's an AI in the room with them. So those are the sorts of things that we, we play with. That's very cool. And so you trained initially as a doctor yep. and then you did a PhD in artificial intelligence. Correct. How did that happen? Quite different areas. Look, and this also happened in the 80s, 1980s, which shows that I'm not young anymore. Look, it was very interesting and it was by accident and luck. Uh, I had finished my medical degree. I was a resident actually at the Royal North Shore Hospital here in Sydney. And by luck, I, I did a rotation in intensive care and, and met one of the, uh, the senior intensivists called David Moore, who was there and was a computer 
geek. I think he wouldn't be offended if I said that. And he very quickly just instilled in me uh, a fascination with with what computers can do. In those days, you know, all a computer would do would print out the biochem results on a bit of paper. But I decided then to take a year off. Instead of going and training to be a physician, I went and did a biomedical engineering master's degree and did a project in AI, or what was called expert systems then, um, and pretty much just got so excited and obsessed with the idea of AI that five years went by and I finished a doctorate, and only then did I realise that I'd forgotten to practice medicine, <laughs> um, by which time things was, were, were, I guess, not really happening in Australia in that field. Um, you know, we, we're not exactly a cutting-edge adopter of technology, although we might think we are, and so I was very lucky to go and spend 10 years with the Hewlett-Packard Research Labs in Bristol, UK, where I really saw the whole internet and dot-com thing happen before my very eyes. It was, it was a wonderful 10 years. So you've talked a lot about AIs, that's your area of interest. Could you maybe explain for us lay people what that actually means for someone who really has no idea and it sounds quite scary? Yeah, so AI is essentially trying to find a way to make a computer complete tasks that we would consider would require human intelligence. And it's a very floating kind of definition because the sorts of things that we now think are are boring and routine and not AI, 20 years ago, were all AI. So the idea of having a computer look at um, your laboratory test results and then make a diagnosis, which we now think of just as a simple classification problem and not AI, was a cutting edge AI question 20, 30 years ago. So today, the big focus in AI is is really around deep learning, which is really um, just one of many ways of using computers to discover patterns in data. And it's just a very powerful way, for example, of learning to classify x-rays or or dermatology images. Uh, And so people are seeing these technologies maybe replace uh, humans in tasks like reading an x-ray, for example. So... You know, it might be that in 15 years' time, the practice of radiology is very different because, you know, reading the film is now done by the machine. And so radiologists will do other parts of the job. And how do you see, I guess I'm thinking from a public health perspective, how can people, I guess, learn more about this or work more closely? I mean, it's been a couple of years, but when I was working in health un- um, public health units, we didn't use a lot of very, you know, digital technology. How can people work more closely or learn more about it and sort of optimise these kind of technologies? So, um, you know, it, I think it was a pretty obscure world 10 or 15 years ago. Now, it should be easy to go online and find a, a MOOC, an online course, just to, to learn a bit about it. If you are interested in becoming specialised in that area, then you, at this stage you probably need to go and do a master's of research or something and just become more expert in the area. It's not easy. You have to invest like anything in, in, in learning about it. But what I would say is that maybe the next three to five years won't look very different to the way they do now. I guarantee you in 10 years, healthcare will be very, very different because of AI. Uh, and the system that we will have in 20 years' time will be utterly transformed. So uh, there's a thing called Amara's Law, and I love it. It says we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short run. You know, oh my goodness, it's going to change everything tomorrow. Well, it doesn't. And we always underestimate its impact in the long run. And so I think long run, 20 years, we're talking about massive change. So if you're a medical student today, 
media through your career, the world will have changed dramatically. So, so it doesn't. It's not actually that far away. So, I would encourage people to just engage, pay attention, learn, and, and if you are really passionate about it, go back to school. And do you think it's useful for people who may, maybe don't necessarily want to go back to school about it, but to have an understanding of it? As you were saying, because it's going to change the whole yeah. field, everyone should have an understanding. I, I think so. I mean, I think um, if you're a consumer or a patient, you're already using simple AI tools to do all kinds of things through the apps on your phone. Um, increasingly, consumers are, are being given services like symptom checkers and triage tools to decide, do I go to the emergency department or not? People are not trained in how to use those tools. People are not trained in the risks of, of those tools. And you know, I would think independent of healthcare, probably as a society, this is something that needs to be taught at, at secondary schools. And, um, and I can't imagine a medical degree or, or a nursing degree, a physio degree today, being relevant and not teaching people important skills around how to safely use these technologies. So I, th- I think probably there's a big issue around anybody involved in education to make sure that this is bread and butter. Yeah, I really agree. And I will say that's actually one of the reasons I took this job because it really scared me because I've always been one of those people that thought technology, that's not for me. Mm. And I'm really trying to do things that, you know, challenge myself to do things that scare me. Um, and it's been really interesting learning. I'm certainly not an expert, but it's really interesting learning about all the work that you guys do here. Don't be scared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting it. Lots of things scare me, so <laughs> it's easy for me to be scared. So you mentioned at the beginning one of the parts of your job is about getting money and grants. Do you have any tips for us around grant writing? Um, the first thing is just to say it's really hard, and um, the only way to get good at it is to keep on writing grants that um, you will need to accept that you will not get most of your first 10 applications. Um, and that that's just normal. The thing that I've learned is that we keep on writing grants as if they're being read by experts in the area and your grant will be decided not by the expert reviewers but but essentially the panel of of lay experts who who decide um, once they get all the reports whether this is good or not. So you've really got to write in a very general compelling way and you have to articulate how the world will be different because of what you do and do you know that's really hard that's the hardest part we all know why we're excited by a piece of science but why should I fund this piece over something that's going to you know cure cancer it's going to solve mental health um, problems um, whatever the big ticket items are you're competing with some massive alternate priorities so you have to be very good at painting a story about why the world needs this and it'll be very different and so Focusing on the pitch is probably more important than getting all the details of the studies right in terms of that panel. Mm, I'll have to keep working on it. I've certainly been guilty of the um, expecting it to be um, experts reading my my um, grant applications. So one of the things I mentioned to you before we started recording was that something I've been struggling with recently as an ECR is finding my own niche. Um, I've been getting a lot of feedback from sort of mentors and PhD supervisors that I really need to find my own niche specialty area. How do you become independent after you've been working under a lot of different people's different grants and projects? Do you have any tips or ideas around that? I can only look at my own experience and um, I think I just tended to find passion projects, things that were exciting for me um, and then 
you know, you, you pursue it, you try and write a few papers in the area so that you have a bit of a pedigree that gives you the, 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 the credibility then to write the grants or to go and have the discussions with the industry, whatever it is, to, to bring in a bit of resource which allows you to build your team. And, you know, as I was saying to you before, I'm, I'm guilty of really not having a single career focus. In fact, if you were to read, you know, a random selection of my papers, you'd think, this is 15 different people. Um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how this could be one coherent career. So I do move um, every three or four years into, into different areas, usually related. Um, I try and always bring what I learned from before into the next thing. But that means that while I'm pursuing a passion project and developing a track record, I'm always exploring new ideas in the corner. And I might even be writing uh, or trying to write a paper or an editorial or review that will be the basis of the next round. Um, but I think you have to have a few years of investment in any, any area, otherwise you just can't be good. You know, um, I have a, one of the things I sort of try and teach my doctoral students to say, look, you know, you, you know when you're at the cutting edge of the world when you start to have ideas and then you read about them three days later because you know then you're at least having world-class ideas. But you have to be in the area long enough for those ideas to actually be original. You know, it doesn't usually happen that you come across an original idea straight away. So there is always a trade-off between getting bored with your with your passion area. Um, and so I never sort of divorce them. I just kind of send them off into a far corner of my life and then they'll come back to them in five or 10 years time. But I think if you don't have passion for it, then I don't think you should do it. That's actually true about the original ideas. I came in one day to um, Adam, who also works for you, who's my boss, um, and I was like, I've got a great idea. And I told him all about it, and he went, that is a great idea. Like, I've already put in a grant to do that, so go and sit down. <laughs> so, but that's a vindication that you're actually thinking now at the cutting edge. Yes, and just so, not original yet. Well, but not original by six months. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, so it's it's when you can get to the point where it's where it's original, or not original by a week, then, then you're actually out there. All right, so a few more months maybe. Hang in there. <laughs> um, and so you were in the UK, and then what was the sort of in between coming back here and then um, working at AHI as a director? What was that progression like? Okay, so so I had this idea about always paying paying dues to where you were before, so that the new area builds on it. So I, when I was at H. HP Labs. Um, I was involved, obviously, in healthcare projects in AI and other parts of digital health. But I was always, I was always clear I was coming back to academia, and so I did a few things over that time. So I wrote a few papers, which appeared in the BMJ um, at that time, just at the beginning of when things were happening. I think I had one one big paper, which was um, in the very first online edition of the BMJ. Which was really cool. That's Just, awesome. Yeah, it was a it was and it was a review of informatics, so that was kind of very timely. So I, I kept on publishing one or two papers a year, and I wrote a book, which I don't think everybody needs to do, but um, you know I did. So when I was ready to come back, which at the end of the ten years, I came back to Australia, and uh, of course nobody knew what informatics was, or let alone medical AI. But I was really lucky that um, at UNSW there was a brand new dean called Bruce Doughton who had uh, just come back from Boston where he had deep exposure to, to my discipline, a lot of my friends and colleagues who were over there. And so he completely got what I was talking about and was convinced enough in the story to, to set up uh, uh, the centre 
uh, for health informatics there at UNSW back in, back in 1999-2000. So that was one of those moments where there was somebody who was you know, in a decision-making position and who got it, and that made a big difference. And how have you, sorry, I know we're, I'm conscious of time, but you've got really good networks. How have you built them? Like, you're obviously very lovely, but do you just go out and chat to people? Or? Um, you know, I think I force myself, but most of the big connections I have now were formed in my doctoral days. So I remember being either being a PhD student or going to conferences in the first two or three years after I finished. And I met lots of people who... Um, were at my stage of career and, and were lovely and non-threatening. So the thing is, you, you roll the clock 20 years and they're all important people. You hear that, all my friends? We're going to be hitting you up in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, director of the National Library of Medicine, you know, the head of um, the Catway Library in Boston or head of the Biomedical uh, Informatics School at Boston or, you know, uh, people at, at Stanford who have got major leadership roles. They were all baby students once. So you made friends with people who were interested in what you were interested in. Yeah, and and they all, you know, they all did well. Oh, that's great advice because I think that's something we can all do is yeah. make friends with people that have similar interests. That's right, and then just with time, cool things happen. So if there is a rule here, so you've got to be patient. Yeah, marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Still learning that. And one thing I just wanted to touch on before we finish is what it's like working in a field that's so changing. Like you mentioned before, you were really around at the time when sort of the internet was just coming out. And even now, everything's still constantly changing. Um, is it exciting? Is it frustrating? Is it everything? Look, it, it is all those things. It's also scary because it's very hard to know how to stay at the front. Uh, I think especially in Australia, it's very hard because, you know, in terms of global investment, we don't invest very heavily compared to other areas. Uh, so I'm always scanning the horizon and I learned very early on that the people who are probably closest to the bleeding edge actually are the doctoral students and the early postdocs. Uh, and so I'm always listening to, to hear what they're reading. Twitter, which is a fantastic tool for me to keep up to date with. So I now have, you know, I think I probably follow 1,500, 2,000 people and I, I see the research, um, not when it's published, when it's too late, but when somebody thinks about it or mm. chats about it uh, in the social media. So I think you just have to remain engaged with where the thought leaders are, and, and that means not waiting for papers to come out because that's already two years too late. You really have to be either at the conferences or see the discussions online. Uh, you've got to be there when the ideas are being formed. We are coming to the end of our time. So perhaps I will ask, do you have any advice for people that are just starting out? Well, I, I, my view is that at least in my field, you know, digital health informatics, AI, this is just the very beginning. And um, although we've been at it now for 30 or 40 years, that's almost just a prelude. Um, so um, this is going to be massive and transformational with huge opportunities really across the whole spectrum of society, not just healthcare. So you will see change happen, uh, probably at a rate we've never seen before over the next 20 years. Uh, I find that both exciting and terrifying because you know you can see things that are both good and bad about it, but just jump in. Hmm, I like that advice, I'm trying. <laughs> um, and just to finish up, I don't know if I prepped you for this, but do you have a favorite book or something that's inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world? Um, Oh, let me think. It's going to be a very boring uh, response. That's what Adam said, but then his wasn't boring at all. I'd never heard of it. Okay, so so mine is, I'm thinking about a book that changed my view, and 
I'm thinking about a book I read uh, probably early in my PhD studies. Remember, I was a medical student, then a doctor, and then I was somehow in a computer science world full of engineer nerds. And I remember that I discovered there was a library next to the biomedical library called the Library of Everything Else at the university. And so I started to walk. Every, every week I would go and spend two hours at the library walking the aisles of the books in subjects I didn't know anything about. And one day I came across a section called the History and Philosophy of Science, and I found a book by a guy called Karl Popper. Um, and this was really a short book which reflected on his career, and I learnt about his whole theory about conjectures and refutations and the nature of science and the nature of knowledge. And so I discovered philosophy and realised how uneducated I was. And really that just transformed my engagement with, with knowledge and thinking. It was just wonderful. Do you have any final messages that anything I haven't covered that you'd like to sort of get out to people? I, I think simply just to say, look, you know, re- if, if research is your thing, then it's an utter privilege to be a researcher. Um, you have a freedom very few people have to go and think about the world and maybe make a change. Um, it's not an easy life, but um, it's in so many ways such a privilege that the pain is worth it. That's why I feel too. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you everyone for listening.